You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey everyone, welcome to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, discuss it, and somehow we've convinced people to listen to it. <laughs> Which is the biggest mystery of all. Yeah. I mean, I understand the Bible stuff, but, you know, I don't, I don't yeah. know. But we appreciate everyone out there. We'll start with that. And uh, There we go. So I, I did want to share real quick the... Uh, I had some, uh, I posted in the paddle store, like you and me, like, you, you know, typically we don't really like kitschy things, but if it's the right kind of kitsch and they know that it's kitsch and they're leaning into that, I'm a hundred percent, like, I have to have some of those things for my studio and for my own amusement. And I posted in the right. paddle store, these church history playing cards and some people had questions about them. Um, I got them. They were part of a Kickstarter uh, campaign. And if they, when the campaign, when they're done fulfilling things, if they have any left over, they're going to sell the extras at elephantcards.com. They're not affiliated with this at all. This is just some people were asking. Um, you can check it out. <laughs> they are, it's, it's great. They're uh, regulation poker size cards, air cushion cards. These are just as good as any bicycle deck you're going to pick up <laughs> off the shelf. Um, but they come with, uh, there's three different ones. I know like a commercial but i got they're just ridiculous um there's early church the uh reformation and the great awakening and the kings queens you know all the face cards and the aces are historical uh figures the reformation ones the ace of spade is luther's 95 theses um it's it's just absurd you should so you can teach your kids poker and church history history. all at once yeah at the same time together yeah. yeah, and, and I was telling Emily uh, just a minute ago, the boxes are like these white and gold embossed uh, boxes, and they, they feel like some of the Bibles I've, I've held during my time uh, through different churches. Um, That's pretty awesome. So they're totally ridiculous. Um, they, eat, they do each come with a little card that has like a, a brief description of who's on the king's cards. Okay. With, uh, so you can learn a little bit about some of the historical figures actually as you play. Um, so just like I said, totally absurd. I got them as a joke. They're beautifully done. Uh, you can see if you're watching on the YouTube feed. Uh, they're they're just these the the backs. They're great. Um, <laughs> but that being said, I'm not going to go through a whole unboxing here. We appreciate doing, that. But I just, I, I, like I said, there are questions in the paddle store. Wanted to put that out there. They're ridiculous. Elephant, uh, yeah, elephant card, elephant, elephantplayingcards.com. And, uh, and if any time now, they should be dropping whatever's left over from that campaign if you want to try to snag some of those. <laughs> well, and we like, you know, yeah, that, like you said, we like bizarre, kitschy stuff and just randomness. And so if but, it, but if only- it knows it, yeah, yeah. Only if it knows it's being catchy, and yeah. this definitely hits all the uh, the marks on that one. 
Right. Yeah. If it, if it owns it. Now, if it doesn't own it, then it, it's bad. It just shouldn't be a part of your collection. So, um, and I won't go off on my Thomas Kincaid rant. Um, so anyway, in Second Samuel 18. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get away from some kitschy, bad church things to some good, legitimate church things. Let's... There we go. Yeah. And this is kind of a fun little, um, I say fun. Y'all guys know me by now. When I say fun, I just think it's interesting. So, because I like interesting things. And we left off last week with Absalom getting hung in the tree. And we were beginning to talk about how that kind of harkens back to the previous chapter where we had Ahithophel who hung himself. And so there's this guy named uh, Fokelman. Real quick, okay. uh, real quick. They they are both hanging, but I just this is uh, this is my English grammar nerd like <laughs> random fact business. Is uh, Absalom was actually hung. Ahithophel was hanged. He hanged because uh, hanged actually is specific for being hung like by the neck for strangulation <laughs> with a noose. That's, One of the, so, the oddities of the English language yeah, there, right? Yeah, so and, I don't want to give yeah. you letters from anyone else who's okay. being pedantic like I am. Yeah, well, I'm not going to worry about that because the point is, is the Hebrew is far more fascinating than the English craziness because what's what's really going on here is this crazy little inversion that we should be so used to the writer Samuel doing to us and picking up these random facts from previous stories to make us look at this new story in a different way. And uh, this guy named Fokelman, uh, he's a, a theologian and scholar. He makes some brilliant analysis of these two stories and how they contrast with each other. Like Absalom's mule abandons him and Ahithophel's donkey takes him safely home. Ahithophel is um, buried in the grave of his father. Absalom is thrown into a nameless pit. Uh, and the, the stories are definitely connected through the act of hanging. Uh, they, they, the idea that someone died because you know, they, they got stuck in a tree and, you know, obviously a hit the pellets because of his own volition. He, he makes that decision. He decided that that was a smart thing to do. He was going to die anyway because he was traitor to the king, but Absalom, the, the one who caused him to be hung or hanged, sorry, uh, <laughs> was God, you know, the, the fact that this is divine intervention or providence that um, Absalom would face this kind of, of punishment. Now, um, we need to realize that under the Torah, specifically Deuteronomy 21, 23, anyone who is hung on a tree uh, or hanged, uh, the ESV is hung, uh, is <laughs> under God's um, curse. So yeah, I'm trying to like feed into your, your, your neurosis there, yeah, it's but a, it's anyway, okay. it, doesn't, it, it doesn't really <laughs> drive me crazy or anything. I just, I, I find it to be an interesting quirk, but I, I think actually we are looking at, I think technically to be correct in the English, which no one cares about this. I don't know why I'm going on about it. Technically to be correct in the English, uh, like I said, uh, Absalom would have been hung. He would have been hung from a tree where mm-hmm. Hithpel would have hanged himself. Uh, unless we unless we view Absalom's being hung in the tree as God actually fulfilling and, and enacting justice. No, I think it's actually it specifically being, with a rope. Oh, it has to be with a rope. I okay, well, this time it was with his—well, we talked about this last week. It was <laughs> the head, not the hair, and why that was significant and all of that. But anyway, the, the point of all of this— and 
you know, this is just how mine and Nathan's uh, brains work. We have to to go through all the little crazy um, side issues before we get to the main one. The point of this is Absalom absolutely warranted being under the curse because first of all, he rebels against his father. And so uh, in Deuteronomy 27, 16, the person who rebels against his father can can be killed. Um, yeah. Well, then also, uh, I'm going to I got to put that out this this out there because mm -hmm. with we're talking about in Deuter is it what was the verse on that Deuteronomy? Well, I'm sorry, that is actually Deuteronomy 23, 21. Um, and yeah, yeah so, because. Because, Might as well make our disclaimer. Yeah, because I mean, this is one of those that's that's taken out of context a lot. So we, this is kind of what we do is we try to bring it back in there. Huh? And uh, oh no, sorry, twenty one twenty at uh, twenty one. It's Deuteronomy twenty one. Twenty one, uh, verse eighteen. Verse eighteen. Okay, that's what I thought I saw. Mm -hmm. there. And you know, yep. the, the rebellious son says you take him before because a lot of people a lot of people take this verse and they say number one, uh, it's used in a lot of ways for parents. Uh, I've seen a lot of fundamentalist parents really manipulate their kids with this and say, well, mm -hmm. your attitude right now, the Bible really says I should, you know, the Old Testament says I should just kill you right now. And they're like, because the right. kid didn't pick up their laundry or something. And yeah. And, and that's not what it's talking about. And then, you know, the, the people who are critical of, of Christianity in the Bible, you want to use it to say, oh, well, the Bible says you can kill your kids. And it's like, okay, mm -hmm. but if you look at the verse, it says, take, take him out. Um, uh, you, you take him before the elders of the city and say he is a stubborn, rebellious. He will not obey your voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. know any five and six, 12 year olds <laughs> who are drunkards. I mean, if that's the right. case, you are, you, that's definitely the parent's fault. You know, so mm -hmm. that's not something we're not just talking about. The kid didn't pick up their laundry or didn't want to eat their vegetables. We're, we're talking right. about someone who is most likely an adult who is not mm -hmm. contributing to society and who's actually being a drain on society. And again, this was during a subsistence culture where you had to scrape just to stay alive. So that's, you know, yes. we're not just, again, not just talking about, oh, my kid, my kid gave me the side eye off with their heads, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> It's right. Anytime this verse this comes is, up, I feel like we should make that kind of disclaimer because people really want to take it off. But what we're looking at with Absalom, definitely, this is the type of rebellious attitude we're talking about. Absolutely, and it's it's beyond that because I mean, if you go to Deuteronomy, the the passage I did cite, which was Deuteronomy twenty seven verse sixteen, it, it says, "Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, say Amen." Then, if you go down to verse twenty. It says, curse be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness and all the people shall say amen. So Absalom 100% warrants being under the curse that's plainly spelled out within the Torah itself. And so the idea now that he is someone who is hung on a tree actually is the fulfillment that, that God is enacting the justice that he's laid out under the law. And so it, it's really interesting, too, if you notice, so you go to Deuteronomy 21 and those passages that we just looked at, the very next section, which picks up in verse 22, is, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God and you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So it's really 
it's interesting that the Torah actually has the, this law concerning a rebellious son and being hung back to back. It's almost like God knew, you know, it, it, it's like he had some kind of idea what was going to happen in the future. Uh, amazing how that happens. Well, so, and, it, and it's, uh, also, it's also kind of interesting because whenever you think about, excuse me, when you think about uh, a lot of conquering nations, especially like you think about the, the Roman, the the Roman Empire. Let me slow down mm-hmm. so people can understand me. <laughs> um, think about the Roman Empire, and in areas where there were rebellions and uprisings, the crucifixion uh, was a not the crucifixion, as we, but you know, right? Crucifying people was was a was mm-hmm. a terrible form of of justice. And it was a terrible form of punishment. And humiliation. Uh, and humiliation. And in a lot of areas where there were these uprisings, they would take the leaders and put the, hang them on crosses and leave them on display for their bodies to just rot. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we're also talking, um, we're telling Israel, you're not to hang war trophies. Don't put the heads of your enemies outside your house kind of thing. Right. Well, at it, least not beyond a certain point in time. There, yeah. there's, there's a time limit on that, because we're going to talk about uh, some of the ways this connects back to different stories where Israel does that. Now, the question is, like anything with the Bible, is it because God said it was okay, or is the Bible just telling us what happened? And right. we've got to make sure that we ask that question. Just because the Bible records an event does not mean God is condoning an event. And so a lot of people make that mistake. Oh, you read this Bible full of violence and rape and all that. Yes, we do. That doesn't mean God's okay with that. Um, and we could talk about a host of other issues. I mean, and so. Well, it's, if you it's think, kind of interesting as people will criticize us for that, but then they'll read something like Game of Thrones. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. We can't get too controversial here. Uh, We're already talking you know, about the Bible. I, I'm not trying. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not trying to say don't read that, but I don't. I just if, if that's don't be mindless of, about what you consume. Exactly. You know, yeah. think about what you're consuming. And so, at least you know, if you want sex and violence, read the Bible. It's all there. Come on. I mean, we don't have to resort to anything else. Um, it's just you got to go to those parts that most of the pastors uh, skip when they were there preaching. So, anyway, verse ten. We're going to get us out of this little. Right. Uh, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Verse 11, Joab said to the man who told him what you saw, what you saw him, exclamation point. Why then did you strike, not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. So verse 21 says that the man, and you know, we're going to just keep rolling here for context. The man basically says, even for a hand's weight, which is a lot of silver, it's, you know, it's a ridiculous amount of silver. He would not reach out his hand against the king's son. So yeah. the, in, well, even, even, uh, the hand's weight thing and the translation I was reading, which I don't know if it was ESV, maybe we might have different edition of it. We the do. One I had said, even if my hand was full of silver pieces. Yeah. And, you know, it's it, it's one of those translation issues. The point isn't well, I just necessarily it was how much. Yeah, so we didn't have yeah. to go into hand's yeah. weight and all that stuff. Yeah, we aren't going to go there. I, the point is, it's a lot. It would have made this, this guy would have been set for life. And, and a belt is, we've talked about this when we looked at Judah and Tamar. The, the belt um, is one of the signifiers of status. And so, you know, to be picked out as one of Joab's favorites, as somebody that Joab has... Um, praised in public would have just immediately put this guy on a whole different uh, social circle and, and level 
than he had been before. But but this guy, I mean, he's just like, uh-uh. He's reminding Joab who Absalom is. Absalom is the king's son. You don't touch the king's son. He's not some random renegade or rebel. This guy is someone the king actually cares about. And he's also reminding Joab, everyone heard David's command regarding Absalom. Mm-hmm. And so what was David's command? Deal gently with or cover the young man, Absalom. So there's no ambiguity about what David wants. David does not want Absalom killed. He expects Joab to actually step forward and protect his son as his son, not as the renegade, not as the rebel. And so, um, you know, basically to, to paraphrase what this guy is saying is, dude, you can't pay me enough is what he's saying. You know, he, he's saying, I know better. And he he's being very, very smart. And um, so he continues. He says, on the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there was nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. So this guy's got Joab's number. He knows exactly what Joab is wanting here. Joab does not want to be accountable for Absalom's death, but he wants Absalom to be dead. And so this guy, whoever he is, which, you know, we got this unnamed guy here. He is really putting Joab on the spot to take responsibility for carrying out what Joab wants. And, you know, he, he realizes that Joab is trying to play him and he's not falling for it. And so verse 14a, I love this. Joab says, I will not waste time like this with you. So, you know, Joab does what a lot of guys do or a lot of people do. I don't want to just single out guys there. But this is a stereotypical response of someone who's been caught. I'm not going to try to defend myself because we both know you're right, but I'm also not going to deny it because I don't want to admit that you're right. Uh, So, you know, Joab's just not playing the game basically is what's happening. And so uh, 14b says, and he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the oak. Now, there's some debate on how we translate the word javelins. Uh, It's been translated spears, darts, sticks, javelins, obviously. Uh, So we really don't know exactly how to translate it because the translators of so many different versions have had this debate. Now, Alter um, suggests that we stick with the standard definition of just sticks. That's typically what this word word means. And he's, you know, in a skilled, in the hands of a skilled warrior like Joab, three javelins would have been enough to kill Absalom. But the fact that we find out as the story progresses, this is not what kills Absalom. He he's still alive in the oak, just like that last line says. So. There, there's some confusion here about what it would mean. Now, Alter speculates that what's going on here is that Joab is merely wounding Absalom. And when we get to verse 15, we find out that the men who were with Joab take turns striking and killing Absalom. It's at that point Absalom dies. Now, the, the Mishnah connects the 10 men with the 10 concubines that, that Absalom had raped on the rooftop, and which I thought was an interesting point. Uh, how seriously you want to take that, that's up to you. But I do. I did think that was kind of a, an interesting detail that the writer chose to include the specific number because it seems like the purpose of what Joab is doing, it's not because he can't kill Absalom, but he's actually spreading the guilt out over multiple people. Nobody's going to be able to say who actually delivered that killing blow. It could have been any one of them that actually did this. And so... There, there's some interesting um, 
some um, interesting ideas with that, that Joab did not want to be held responsible for being the one who actually put Absalom to death. And so, uh, you know, and this is really precisely the, the kind of reaction you would expect from Joab. I mean, we've got to stop and think about who Joab is. I mean, he is the general of the country. He is David's top guy. And we know that in this, that Joab's, um, getting ahead of myself because there's just so many good points in this whole story. Uh, we know that Joab, he, he's the kind of guy who acts. Remember when, back with Abner, when Abner had, had gone to David and he'd said, you know, hey, let's form an alliance and I'm going to be on your side. And Joab's like, uh-uh, you're getting played. I've got to take him out. And of course, there was that element where, you know, Abner had also killed Joab's brother. But how much of this was in retaliation for his brother's death? And how much of it is him actually protecting David? Joab doesn't mess around with people. And I think in this moment, he wasn't looking at Absalom as his cousin. He wasn't looking at him as David's son. He was looking at him as someone who threatened David's rule. And Joab has made it very clear that he will do whatever it takes to defend David's rule. I mean, when, when David sent the message concerning Uriah, Joab, he, he didn't ask questions. He didn't flinch. He, he, he killed the guy. And, and this was a guy that he would have served with in David's army. Uriah was not a stranger to him. And so the fact that Joab, he kills Abner, he kills Uriah. And, you know, he, he's the kind of guy who, who takes action. And he's not worried about the political fallout. He's not concerned about how it looks. All he wants is to make sure that David stays on the throne. and we got to remember, too, Absalom had played Joab in the past. Mm -hmm. Joab was the one who, who made it possible for Absalom to return back to Jerusalem. He was the one who got Absalom the audience with David. Remember, Absalom had burned his field to get Joab to come out and talk to him. So he knew that Absalom was smart enough to know how to play the system. Mm -hmm. And so there's a really good chance that Joab said, I'm not letting this happen again. The only way I can make sure this guy does not weasel his way back into David's good graces is to kill him. And so the fact that Joab disregards what David says should not really be a, a surprise to us. That we should know from what we've seen of his character in the past that this is a guy who he doesn't care. If it's going to stand in the way of what he thinks is right, and the one thing that we know he thinks is right is David's rule as king, he's going to take it out, period. So, in, in you know, even if that means covering up David's sin with Bathsheba, even if that means, you know, killing his own countrymen, he doesn't care. And so we've kind of been led to the point through through this whole tale that the writer Samuel has been given us to to expect Joab to be so decisive in his uh, action and it'll prove to be divisive too. Right. So, but verse 16, Joab blew the trumpet, which is a shofar. Um, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel and for Joab restrained them. So Alter notes that there's a pun in this verse and it's, it, you, you know, puns require that you know the language sure. that they're being told in. So it's kind of untranslatable to to maintain any kind of ha-ha moment or even, you know, 
puns aren't really puns until they're full grown. Okay. Um, but anyway, you aren't going to get a good groan out of this. It's Joab made a piercing sound with a shofar. And if you look at the word for that the ESV used for blue, it's the same word for struck or stab it, it, that was used of the javelins. So what Joab did to Absalom as, as far as attacking him, now he's turning around and he's calling the people to retreat. He's saying, you know, we aren't going to pursue the, the other army, uh, Absalom's army. We're going to pull back. And so you have that reversal, even though it's the same word, which is kind of interesting. So Joab has basically followed Ahithophel's reasoning. He, he's basically said, we took out the leader. The army's going to scatter. We don't need to pursue them anymore. So we can, we can stop any further death and killing within the nation. We don't have to go any further. And, you know, there's no need to pursue uh, Absalom's army. But the Bible makes it very clear, and I thought this was, this was interesting. Joab is the one who restrains them. Even though he's very adamant that Absalom has to die, he's still willing to protect the rest of the country. And he stops what could have turned into a full-scale civil war. He stops a repeat of what happens at the end of Judges, where the tribe of Benjamin was almost completely wiped out. And this is the reason why Joab is celebrated as a sage and a rabbi by the future rabbis, that he was considered to be so wise and was willing to, to make the stand in the preservation of the nation of Israel that he actually keeps the nation intact when David's still sitting at home. And so it's, it's kind of interesting because you don't think about the fact that the armies had to be restrained. And it, Joab, the guy who just defied David, is the one who did it. And he, he's the one who actually saves the country in this moment. And so, um, you know, there's a lot to celebrate Joab for, even though we wind up, you know, with kind of a bittersweet taste in our mouth with all of Joab's story. Yeah. But, well, and I think what we're kind of seeing here is Joab's, Joab's kind of being one of those friends who is like the, uh, you know, sometimes we all need that friend who will do the right thing for you, even when you don't want to do the right thing for yourself. Despite of you. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's kind of what's happening here. Exactly. And we're going to see that Joab actually gets very almost pushy with David and, and tells him, hey, you're not being the guy you're supposed to be as the story progresses. And, you know, and David wasn't really a fan of it. So, you know, another chink in, in David's armor, maybe. But we'll we'll talk about that when we get there. But verse 17, and they took Absalom and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all of Israel, um, all Israel fled everyone to his home. So according to the Torah, Absalom's body had to be removed. Remember, if, if someone's hung in a tree hanged in a tree, whatever. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. I didn't mean to derail the whole show with that. <laughs> uh, I've got to beat the dead horse. Uh, anyway, uh, it's got, he's got to be, the body has to be removed before nightfall. Now, the fact that the body is removed, that's actually evidence that Joab and his men did see this as legal action. This is justice enacted by God. This isn't just, you know, oh, it's an accident. And you also got to remember, in this culture, nothing was an accident. Nothing was devoid of that spiritual significance, unlike our culture today, where we just, you know, chalk things up to happenstance and statistics. But this, this form of burial, 
accomplishes a couple of things. First of all, it, it connects um, Absalom with Achan. Now, you'll find Achan's story in Joshua 7. We know that during the, the, the siege of Jericho, that Achan stole some of the stuff. He buried it in his tents. The next battle that the people engaged in, people of Israel engaged in, they, they get their butts whooped. And Joshua's like, hey, what's going on here? And God tells him, you know, you got to find the guy who didn't do the right thing. You got to find the guy who, who disobeyed. So in Joshua 7, 26, it says, and they raised over him, and they're talking about Achan here, they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. So Achan is the rebel who took the treasures of Jericho that did not belong to him. Absalom is the rebel who takes the throne of Israel that does not belong to him. So you've got that connection there. And if Absalom had been allowed to remain on the throne, what this does is tells us that Israel would not have been successful and protected as a nation any further. And we're going to get more into why that is later, because um, it's an interesting web of uh, ideas uh, being woven through the story. So verse, uh, the second thing it accomplished, sorry, start to say verse two. Second thing it accomplishes is it connects Absalom with the king of Ai. Now, Ai was the city where Achan's sin caused the defeat. But if you skip ahead to Joshua 8, 29, we read, and he, speaking of Joshua here, hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took the body down from the tree and threw it into the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Now, Bergen reads this as an implication that like the king of Ai, Absalom was, uh, Absalom's death reveals that he is an enemy to God's people. He's not just an enemy to David. He actually has the ability to endanger the entire nation. And it also bears some resemblance to the, the death of the five kings, the five Amorite kings, which you find their story in Joshua 10. Not so close, but I figured I'd mention it. But finally, the, what this does is it fulfills the command in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, where the, the rebellious son is stoned. That's the punishment for being a rebellious stone, a rebellious son, is that you're stoned. And so they are symbolically stoning Absalom by covering him with this heap of rocks. And so what we need to remember is this particular form of burial is reserved for those guilty of the worst crimes against God and his people. They're traitors. They're people who betray God's purpose and intentions. And I think if you, you follow the story, uh, you will agree that Absalom is guilty of terrible offenses against God and his people. I mean, he invades Israel and he invades Jerusalem, the holy city, the city where the, the Ark of the Covenant is, where the temple is going to be built. He, he has violated the command against honoring his mother and father. He sexually abused 10 of David's concubines as a political statement. And then he, he commanded a war that could have destroyed Israel. And so you know, we've already demonstrated how Absalom has acted like one of the sons of God through Gen in Genesis 6. And it's this connection that illustrates how we should see the king of Ai and the five Amorite ki kings. And the reason why this connection is important for, for having a lens to view those guys through is because so often when there's a critique of the Bible, it's, oh my goodness, how can the Old Testament God command genocide? How can the Old Testament God command that 
the children of Israel wipe out all these nations. It's really easy whenever you take it out of this this kind of abstraction, which that's what you get when you start talking in large numbers. You get abstractions. Uh, You get statistics. And they don't mean anything to you. But if we look at Absalom's story, just his individual story, how easy is it for us to condemn him for what he did? We have no problem saying this guy is a sinner, he's evil, he's wicked, he needs to you know, be stopped. We can't allow someone who rapes 10 women in broad daylight to be a part of our society. There's that uh, kind of visceral reaction because they're numbers that are small enough for us to wrap our head around. Now, if Absalom's sins are connected back to AI, back to these Amorite kings, now we can see what Absalom did on an individual level is actually what these guys were doing on a national level. And we're going to talk some more about uh, what their sins were specifically. But if we can condemn Absalom, then we shouldn't have a problem condemning these Canaanite uh, nations that were doing these horrible things. And so if Absalom is worthy of justice, the Canaanites were worthy of justice. And so I don't think we should try to excuse nations for doing what we would condemn a single person for. And so this kind of allows us to kind of contextualize what's going on. Now, the other part of this too is I don't think we should take that phrase, sons of God, lightly. It's not just a a nice way of saying it. It's not a ceremonial phrase. I mean, the angels that did this were sons of God in the same sense they were his creation. They, they were loved. They, there was some affection there. There was some grieving that, that went on. I mean, go back and read Isaiah 14. Read Ezekiel 28. Notice that there's almost a lament over the, these fallen, uh, you know, in this case, Satan, um, this, this fallen being that we've been taught, okay, well, there's just hatred and, and anger and wrath for. No, no, there was a connection between God and all of his creation. And so uh, I think we need to take that title seriously and not think that, oh, well, you know, they're just these things that w- are just out there. You know, we, we don't dismiss them uh, as trivial or inconsequential. So um, anyway, if, if we look at Absalom and David's story as a, as a type and foreshadowing in the Old Testament, we, we can actually begin to look at other uh, instances of fathers and sons. And if you notice the son who is not part of the covenant, the son who, who gets kicked out of the covenant community, the father always laments, whether we're talking Abraham with Ishmael, Isaac with Esau, David over Absalom. You know, he's going to, later on in the story, B'nai Absalom, my son Absalom. And we, we see this this the sense where the loss of one that you once loved and once loved you to the covenant community is something to mourn. It's not something to celebrate. Now, there's another connection here in the story too, because Absalom's buried beneath a great heap of stones, which is kind of like a symbolic mountain. And we know that the sons of God who who did fall in Genesis 6, that they're imprisoned beneath Mount Hermon. So, we have all of these these things going on where we're seeing not just uh, 
not just a time where, oh, well, there's there's a horrible person and we should hate him, but there there's actual grief over the break in the relationship. And that was always the case. Every story, like I said, all, every story of father and son in the Bible, you, you see that that grief. And so I, I think we should be careful not to not to just discount it. I, th- I think we need to add some weight to that that phrase, sons of God, and recognize that there there was damage done to the heart of father over that. And not just damage for, you know, the fact that he lost relationship with them, but the fact that they went on to hurt us. And that's the reason why Absalom had to be stopped. That's why these nations that these these um, angels that rebelled had to be stopped. So there, there's this huge web uh, of threads. And so anyway, um, back to the verse. The, the last line there is they all fled back to their tents. and um, that's basically, you know, they were cowards. This is not a, a orderly retreat. This is uh, we we are running for our lives. And the reason for that is everyone who fought on Absalom's side were guilty of treason, and therefore they were worthy of death. And so we, this is not a light thing that happened. This is not something that's going to get you know just swept under the rug. There's going to, this is going to cause problems because now traitors are in the midst, whether they repent and restore the relationship with David, or they go on to, to harbor these feelings of resentment. This is going to prob- cause problems in the kingdom as we go forward. And so um, we could be watching for that. Verse 18, now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. So the most obvious problem with this verse is 1 Samuel 14, 27 plainly says Absalom has three sons. Mm -hmm. So why would he say this? This is our question. Why would he say, I don't have any sons? So we have a couple of different ideas. One, most obvious, I think, is they're dead. Right. There's been a lot of fighting going on. This is a time when a, a scratch on your foot can kill you. Um, this is a time where a common cold can kill you uh, quite easily. Mm-hmm. So they might have died. Now, Josephus provides the idea that Absalom was so vain that he erects this monument in his name because he was worried his sons were so weak they were going to die. Now... Or maybe he sure. thought he was so great that no one could, no one could ever match him. That, that's another. That's another theory. That the idea that his sons were so weak and not worthy of carrying on his legacy that he had to do something like this. Now, Casuto, who's by the way, Casuto uh, is one of my favorite uh, Old Testament scholars. But he sees this pillar as being similar to some other monuments that are um, erected at the time in the Ugaritic cult of the dead. Now, the the issue with that, and Zamora points this out, is those types of pillars were normally erected by the family members after someone had died. Now, if that's the case, that there is some kind of connection to this Ugaritic cult of the dead, then we see another time that Absalom is willing to take tradition and um, the cu- the customs of the day and, and invert them 
and to to reshape them to serve his own purposes. I mean, it's like this guy has no respect for anyone or anything. He's just going to do what he wants to do. And now what is really interesting here is this word for monument here in Absalom's monument is the same word that we found whenever we had David and Eli standing by beside the gate. Remember, it wasn't beside the gate. It was the hand of the gate. And so here oh, we yeah. have... Yeah, you mentioned that a couple episodes ago. <laughs> basically, the word for monument and Absalom's, uh, in Absalom's monument is the same word as we found when David stood beside the gate. So at the hand of the gate, Absalom's hand, Absalom's monument, all the same word. And so there's this really interesting kind of uh, dichotomy where David stands beside the gate or the hand of the gate, and he sings blessing. He sings life out over the troops. And remember, we talked about how he was probably singing Psalm 20, uh, or there's the possibility it was Psalm 20, that he was singing at this point in time. And, you know, this was his position in life as the leader, where Absalom couldn't even hold on to his position as king in death. And so you have this very interesting reversal where the only thing that's really left to remember Absalom is this monument that he had to raise for himself that actually wound up having absolutely no meaning because he was never really the king of Israel. And the only time he is at the hand, like Eli and David, who were legitimate rulers, is in his death. And he doesn't even make it there. I mean, he, he gets buried in a nameless pit. So uh, it, this is showing the complete decimation uh, of Absalom's claim to any kind of authority. And I, I thought that was really, um, really interesting that the writer actually makes this little kind of inversion that if you don't know the Hebrew, you're, you're going to miss it. And uh, of course, we've, we've seen previously how this guy is just so smart when it comes to writing. But, you know, Absalom... There's so much in his story because the source of his pride, his hair, becomes his undoing, uh, his sense of superiority over his father and his father's moral failings uh, are exposed as being baseless because he actually surpass, surpasses his father uh, in his father's sins. And we talked about uh, how there's that echo of the divine cherubim's, uh, the divine guardian's vanity and pride in Exodus, I'm sorry, in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 in Absalom's story. And the writer's gone to really great lengths to show us how the rebellious son has been defeated. Now, what's really interesting about the rebellious son motif within the Bible is you have this repeated so many times, but the way it's tied together, because, you know, we talked about Deuteronomy 8, sorry, 20, 18 through 21, that the rebellious son is someone who does not obey the voice of their father or mother. They're someone who will not accept discipline. They're stubborn. They're a glutton. They're a drunkard. And then we're told how to do this. How, how do you deal with this kind of son? And that the father and mother take hold of him. They take him down to the judges and they charge him with all the charges that we just described. And then the son's to be stoned. Now, um, Verse 21 gives us the reason for this. The reason is, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all of Israel shall hear and fear. Now, the purpose of bringing down this harsh judgment on a rebellious son is to purge the evil, and so that Israel can hear and fear. And so the, the other passage 
concerning rebellious children, which is Exodus twenty one seventeen, said, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So the reason for all of this is, number one, it takes the punishment for this rebellious child out of the hands of a parent who might be emotionally driven, emotionally biased. It actually puts them before, quote unquote, impartial people to make the decision, is this rebellion worthy of death? Or is this just a parent who's trying to control their child in a way that's inappropriate? And then it also says, hey, we can take this rebellious person. And guess what? They're not part of the covenant community anymore. They don't get to possess the land. They don't get to partake in the blessing of God. They actually are removed from the covenant community because why? The covenant community is what's supposed to reveal God's presence on the earth. So this covenant community has to be protected under the Torah, totally set apart and totally holy. How do we do that? We remove rebellion. We remove rebellion from our midst. Mm -hmm. So the land cannot be corrupted with the rebellion. Now, we talked on, uh, I think it was last week, about whether this is metaphorical corruption in the land or if we should read this literally. And um, I, I did find it very interesting as I was kind of working with this process and the, this thought um, of rebellion is how often rebellion is tied directly to issues with the land. Because we can look at Genesis 3, go right back to the beginning. We've talked about this before. The curse is never put on Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. It's not there. They are not cursed in Genesis 3. I can't repeat this enough. The land is cursed on account of what Adam has done. It's the land that that um, suffers the consequence. Because, because of you, the earth is cursed. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That's God's words, okay? God says it's the land that's cursed. And, and so Genesis 6, in the second great rebellion, I want to read this from Enoch, because um, we know if you— been around for a while. The book of Enoch retells that story of Genesis 6. It goes into greater detail. It's quoted by New Testament writers, uh, not inspired in the same way that the canon of Scripture is inspired, but still very important. So this comes from chapter 7, verses 2 through 11. I know it's a lengthy passage. Just bear with me. And they, this is the sons of God or the watchers, taught them, and this is the human wives, charm spells and showed them the cutting of roots and trees, and they became pregnant and bore large giants. Their height was 3,000 cubits. These devoured all the toil of men while the men were unable to until the men were unable to sustain them. And the giants turned against them in order to devour men, and they began to sin against the birds and against the animals and against the reptiles and against the fish, and they devoured one another's flesh, and they drank the blood from it. And the earth complained about the lawless ones. So even in Genesis 6, the earth itself bears the consequences of the sins that are committed on it. So rebellion has impact on the earth. Genesis 11, that's the the third great rebellion. Remember, that's the Tower of Babel. What happens there? God gathers humanity. The, The nations are allotted according to the number of the sons of God, Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9. And we know that the, the rebellious nations that once inhabited Canaan, who were underneath those, those foreign gods, those sons of God, that the land vomited them out. And Israel is told, you know, don't do these things lest you could be vomited out too. That's Leviticus 18, 25, 28, 20, and chapter 20, verse 22. Deuteronomy 9, 
5 and 18.12 basically says that God drove the nations out of the land because they did detestable things and their wickedness. So we, we see this connection between rebellion and, and the land. It, it's, it's throughout the Bible. We could talk all day about it. But the Bible actually describes rebellion as something that, re, that pollutes the land. And so in, it gets very specific when you start looking at that theme of what pollutes the land. Sexual sin pollutes the land. Murder pollutes the land. Leaving a body hanging in a tree pollutes the land. Sacrificing children to idol pollutes the land. And basically any act that is in direct rebellion to the Torah pollutes the land. So if we have this polluting of the land, we've got to remember that the land eventually rebels and vomits the people out. So you have to keep rebellion down within the community if you're going to maintain control of the land, if you're going to stay a part of that inheritance. And Absalom is the rebellious son who cannot be allowed to pollute the land. He's also the heir apparent to the throne. He's the next guy in line to inherit from David. You can't have a king who's rebellious like this. we got to go, because if we go back to 1 Samuel 12, all the way back to when um, Israel didn't even have a king, and Eli's making his farewell address, notice what he says in chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. It will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So Samuel's warning to the nation isn't just that the people have to do right, the king has to do right. And so Absalom cannot be allowed to be king because remember, if moving forward just a little bit in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, for rebellion is a sin as is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is when Saul had um, kept the king of the Amalekites alive because now Saul had rebelled against God. He can't be king. Absalom, he is totally in rebellion, so he can't be king. In so many ways, Absalom embodies everything that impacts the well-being of Israel and actually impacts the well-being of humanity. So if the rebellious son has to be purged from the land to keep evil from um, polluting the land, the nation's uh, well-being depends on the, the obedience and loyalty of the king to God. If sexual sin would cause this land to vomit the people out, then Israel's fate hinges on the fate of Absalom. It, it becomes so much bigger than just dealing with one person. This is actually about the well-being and the eternal well-being of the, the country. And so I think we also need to remember that the weightiest commandment within the Torah was to honor one's father and mother. Because if you honor your father and mother, then you're going to honor what they teach you. And what does a father and mother teach a child in Israel? Well, that's spelled out in Deuteronomy 6. It starts in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your, um, be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall be, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is what a parent is commanded to do for their child. So if a child is honoring their mother and father, they're honoring these teachings that they have been given since the time they were little bitty that are being taught consistently day after day and through simple uh, repetitious things that you do as a human being just al- being alive. You go in and out the door. You walk on the way. But then it goes on to describe that by honoring God's commands, the nation will be blessed. But failing to to honor God's commands means you're going to get kicked out. You're, you're going to have curses. You're going to have hardship. The land's not going to yield uh, good food for you. It's not going to provide for you. So Absalom in his rebellion against David is absolutely actually rebelling against God. And as the king, he does have the potential to place the nation in jeopardy. And, and this is why the, the story of the prodigal son becomes so interesting when you plug it back into these Old Testament. Oh, something <laughs> uh, caught Jackson's attention. Something but when you plug the, the, <laughs> the doorbell, um, but the uh, the prodigal son, in context of all of this, suddenly becomes very fascinating in a way that it's not, I mean, it's a great story. Okay, I don't want to downplay the significance of Jesus' parable. But when you look at it through this lens, it, it kind of highlights some things that you you might not have noticed before. So you have, you know, two sons, one who is, man, he's faithful, he's loyal, who, he follows the rules. He doesn't break the rules. He he does everything right. He respects his father's position of authority. Then you've got the one who basically says, hey, dad, I don't need you. I just need your money. Mm-hmm. So he asked for the, you know, asked for the inheritance. And, you know, he goes to a far country. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in Israel anymore. He's in a far country. And that point is really driven home by the presence of pigs. And in the Gospels, it just says, he squanders his fortune or in a a reckless or dissolute life. So we aren't really told what that means. You know, Jesus doesn't really elaborate what does it mean, what what is he doing precisely. But basically the connotation is he's violating the Torah. He he's not doing what God has told him to do. And and we need to remember, you know, his first sin was that he disrespected his father. And because he disrespected his father, he's disrespecting the Torah, just like Absalom. And I think the other thing to help us kind of understand what was going on here is look at Paul's writing. This is essentially the same culture and the same society. And Paul's, what does he speak out against? You know, idolatry, sexual sin. Uh, he talks about um, pagan feast. You know, all of these things that Paul talks about in his letters would have been stuff that people, faithful Jews, would have been tempted to do in Jesus' time. So that kind of gives us a little bit of an idea of what could have gone on. It's not just that this guy was with the pigs, okay? I think we like to focus on that because we can kind of go, ah, ha, ha, pigs, whatever. You know, we can, we can kind of blow it off. It's not something that actually applies to us. But he, he is explicitly violating that heaviest commandment of honoring your your mother and father. And by showing that he's willing to violate that command, right there, it tells you everything you need to know. If you're a good Jew, you know this means he's willing to violate all of them. I mean, you don't need any further explanation. 
So then we find out, uh, and this is, I'm reading out Luke uh, 15, by the way, uh, paraphrasing from Luke 15. Uh, the son returns to his senses. He comes to himself is what, what it says. And, um, you know, the father defies all social and societal expectations because when the son comes to him and he sees the son far off, the father runs to him. And, you know, number one, you know, rich men don't run. Um, wealthy men don't run. Respectable men don't run. But we we have this idea of the, of the son coming to himself, which I think is an interesting phrase, because even though it doesn't say he repented, I, I think it's hard not to see the fact that we're talking about repentance, where the whole story is about repentance as far as the son is concerned. And the problem is, so often when we read this story, we we kind of look at, oh, this is the son who who defied his father. This is the son who went off and did terrible things. And this is the son who had to be welcomed back. And, and he's the prodigal son, right? Jesus never clarifies. Jesus never explains to us which son is the prodigal son. Because if you remember your story, the older son, the son who stays, he's embittered. He's upset. How could his dad welcome this kid who's gone and squandered all this money and done all these horrible things back into the family and celebrate this, this child's uh, return? And so Jesus uses the story to present the, the depth of, of God's love for the sinner who repents and God's faithfulness to forgive those who repent. But there's also this kind of underlying warning of don't be the older brother. You know, don't don't be the one who thinks you're so holy and so righteous that you're without sin. Mm -hmm. So now take these principles, which I mean, I know I didn't spend a lot of time on, but take these principles and go back to Absalom's story. Where did we begin? He was outraged at the fact that his sister had been raped by their brother. He's outraged that his father has lost any ability and is unwilling to actually punish Amnon for what he has done to, to, to Tamar, what is proper under the Torah. And he, he is saying, my sense of justice, my sense of what needs to happen here is better than the father's sense of justice. Absalom in this story, if we look at through the prodigal son, Absalom would be the brother who stayed. He's the brother who did the right thing. David would be the brother who said, hey, I want it all. Because remember, David, when he took Bathsheba, what, what did God tell him through Nathan? If you would have asked for anything, even Saul's wives, I would have given them to you. All you had to do was ask. It was all right here. But the, the son who left, who said, I want more than what you're giving me right now, it, it, that, that becomes the embodiment of David. Absalom becomes the one who has a sense of moral superiority and thinks that he can actually be better than his father. And so within both stories, we see this warning, this warning that says, hey, you can't think that you're better than the father. The moment you think your love and your grace and your mercy and your justice exceeds the righteousness of the father, you're going to be out of line. You're actually going to become everything you hate, everything that you shouldn't be. And so we begin to see that Jesus' story, even though it seems so new and so out of place, and, and whenever you're looking at the Bible from beginning to end, it's not. It's, it's the same story that's been repeated 
from the beginning of the Bible. It's the same story that we heard back in Genesis 3, when the snake tempts Eve and says, you want to be like God? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's this. It's been there. And, and so this isn't some kind of new revelation in the New Testament. This is the continuation of what God's already revealed from the beginning of time. And I think that's really the, the point of the story of Absalom, is when you start thinking that your sense of justice is, is so much bigger than God's, and you try to impose on him how you think he should enact that sense of justice, you better watch out mm-hmm. because you will become something that you shouldn't be and something that actually is pretty um, despicable in the eyes of God. So anyway, um, I, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up for this week. Okay. But um, I, yeah, you know, I, Absalom's story is just amazing yeah, because and, there's so much in it. Yeah, there, there's a lot there. And like I said, and, and that's the thing, and, I, and that's the thing I, that I keep seeing over and over. We keep pointing it out over and over. It's the story of the Bible has always been the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I find it really interesting how many Christians think that Jesus just showed up on the scene and invented a whole bunch of stuff, whole cloth from nothing. And, and, or it, contradicted God. Or contradicted, yeah. And it, it really is. And, that, and, and people, Christians get upset for people saying the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Well, that's the way we, that we've kind of presented it, is that mm-hmm. God was kind of this, uh, I don't know, like this, that he was just mean to the world by not sharing any of his love until Jesus showed up. And then all of a sudden, we're supposed to figure out that God's loving when it's like if you look at how the Old Testament plays out. You see God's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his, his willingness to allow people to repent. I mean, I, I've read several Jewish commentaries where repentance is one of the key it's huge. components. And I, I've heard people say that, that you know, I've, you know, I've been taught in different churches, and I'm, I'm frustrated with how much, I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but I feel like I've <laughs> wasted a lot of my a lot of time in my life listening to sermons that were so factually incorrect on the way the mm-hmm. Bible's interpreted. And, and, you know, it's these things that, you know, before Jesus, we had to either keep all these we laws, had keep all the, we had to keep all the laws, and then we had to, to kill these animals for, for the forgiveness of our sins. But whenever you really start digging into uh, a lot of the Jewish theology, repentance is so key. It's mm-hmm. not something that Jesus made up. And I, I think that is something we've got to, to, to get around is, is that, you know, a lot of the things that Jesus was preaching against were the things that were added to the Torah and added to the law. And so, um, you know, the, the things that, that restricted people from seeing God as loving. And well, I, think it, we, I think every, you know, every few years we need to strip away <laughs> all, of our, all of our extra stuff, all of the things that, that people put in put in and they just become barriers uh, i mean mm-hmm. and a lot of the things are good a lot of things are, are great explanatory tools if you have the biblical foundation yeah but if you yeah. don't then that becomes your bible and that becomes an a, i mean it's an idol it, well because you know, i was about to say a noose um <laughs> i mean it, but i, oh, I it, think both. of a better term but it, it becomes the thing that that keeps you from it becomes your blinder if you can't mm-hmm. read past your systematic and your and your learning tools that are supposed to help you learn, uh, so, well, and, and I think I think this is too where you, you know 
when people look at quote unquote the God of the Old Testament and they they see him as being you know just horribly evil and judgmental and wrathful and, and what, from their perspective, I'm not saying that about him. Um, but when you look and see who that judgment and who that wrath was 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 uh, focused on, it, it it's really is that limiting of going against the the ones who've rebelled against God and saying, you don't get to hurt my kids anymore. Mm-hmm. You, you don't get to hurt the earth anymore. And if we do read those passages as being literal, like we talked about, then the idea that sin actually causes real damage in the earth and causes a visceral response from the earth, then you begin to understand this is why it has to stop. It can't be allowed to continue or mm-hmm. else there's no place for Israel to live. There's no place, no land for Israel to carry out its divine destiny, mm-hmm. which is to get the Messiah here. Now, all of a sudden, this becomes acts of mercy, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity, because how else does all of the earth re-engage with God and reverse the, the curse at Babel and reverse all the things <clears throat> that happened to Genesis 6 and Genesis 3 and return us back to Eden like we're supposed to be? So yeah, yeah and it's, it's not even yeah, not even just redemption of humanity, redemption of the earth, and which is a crazy thought. And then we, because, <laughs> I mean, because well, when you get to Revelation, it's you know talks about the curse being lifted. Well, mm-hmm. where's the curse? It's on the earth. Christ, yes, Christ's death and resurrection was about the salvation of humanity, but it was also about the salvation of humanity for the redemption of the earth. I mean. That you... The earth groans for her redemption. I mean, come on. It's mm-hmm. all throughout the Bible. And so, and so when, you, when you actually look at sin as having power, it's not just an, oops, I made a mistake, but sin is having power to, to damage. That changes your perspective of what sin is and why it should be avoided. Yeah, and, and I'm so, not saying, and again, not saying we should be earth worshipers. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we don't bow down and worship the earth. We bow down and we worship God, and we put ourselves mm-hmm. in alignment for his plan so mm-hmm. anyway i before i go too much farther on that because i know we're already uh you know a few minutes we're long, close to time but um i did want to uh mention to our youtube crowd last week we had some issues getting video transferred over for me to edit um and i know that it's it i don't like looking at a still picture of our logo mm-hmm. when someone's talking but um so i i'm waiting till we can get those over i'm probably going to post both of these at the same time, as soon as I get them, they might both come out on Monday. You might get this uh, last week's a few days earlier. We'll see. Just depends on how quickly I get the editing done. But I'm going to try to get those knocked out this weekend and get those up. Uh, and I do apologize again to YouTube listeners, YouTube uh, viewers, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, we'll try to get that up as quickly as we can. We just had some technical issues with our with our transfer system. Yeah, fun stuff. So. Um, but that being said, um, if you, um, are caught up and you want to, or even if you're not, if you want to be part of the conversation, <laughs> um, come check us out, uh, Raven Creek SC on all the social media is where you can contact me and Emily. Um, ravencreeksc.com is where you can find, uh, the show notes for this show. You can find other shows. You can find, uh, attending our nets with, uh, Joshua Sherman. Um, I always... Yes. I always hesitate with the last <laughs> names because I'm, it's always, Sher, was it Sherman Stebner? They both start with S and it, but, uh, so, but Stedman is TJ who has answers to giant questions. Tim. Tim, 
Tim or TJ. I've seen him on both those. It's really funny. I've known three guys named Tim who go by Tim or TJ um, in my lifetime. Um, I don't know if that's like a common thing. I guess it is common enough. I've known three. But this one has a great show called Answers to Giant Questions, um, also on the Raven Creek Social Club. Go check it out. Um, he does a lot of good work down there. Luke T. Harrington with Change My Mind. You can find his show. Um, having some interesting conversations with people who have changed their minds about big things, little things, innocuous things, and silly things. Um, I think that and important of, things. And important <laughs> things. I, well, big things, little things, big things, important things. You know, I think that okay. covers all the bases. And then um, we have, is that all of us? Who do we have? No, we also no, have we Joe. Joe. How can I forget Joe? Joe, has been with us from the beginning. Um, Commentary. Pushed us off this cliff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pushed us off. <laughs> yeah. Got finally, finally gave us the the courage to get this thing launched. Um, so we owe him a great uh, deal of gratitude. And we still have never got a chance to meet the guy in person. He needs to come to Oklahoma sometime. But that yeah. being said, go check out his show and uh, encourage him to come see us. Or maybe we can make it to California. We'll see how things go. Um, that being mm. said, we'll see everybody next week. Have a great time. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.